Hello and welcome to episode 14 of the Ryan Glover podcast with guests for the blueworldorder.com website. Unfortunately, no guests today, but instead we will have extended thoughts with our producer, Jordan Taylor. Me and Jordan will break down the Grizzlies coaching search. We have some had some few names that have popped up in the last couple of hours slash days. So me and Jordan will get into that, what we think going forward with the Grizzlies head coaching search. We will break down the NBA playoffs. Unbelievable game one between the Oklahoma City and the Golden State Warriors. We'll talk about that. Uh, quick, quick, quick recap of Game 1 of the Eastern Conference Finals, which turned out to be an absolute snoozer. You could fall asleep through that, no problem whatsoever. And then finally, recap the NBA Draft Lottery, what we thought happened. Basically, nothing happened. First time in NBA history that 1 through 14 stayed 1 through 14. We'll talk about specific teams and what we think they should do in the upcoming draft, which is about five weeks away. Producer Jordan, hello, how are you? Unfortunately, no guest today. Late circumstances made us had to reschedule for next week, but I promise you we'll come back next week with a better and improved podcast. But until now, extended thoughts with you, how are you? I'm doing good, Ryan. How are you doing today? I'm good, man. I'm good. So let's get into the Memphis Grizzlies coaching search. Literally, just within the couple of hours, Jordan, Mark Stein of ESPN tweets out a very, basically a line of tweets about the Memphis Grizzlies and other head coaching news around the NBA. Started with, Quote, NBA coaching sources meanwhile say Spurs assistant James Borrego has gained steam of his own in Memphis search after a strong interview, unquote. So if nobody's familiar with Borrego's work, was an interim coach with the Orlando Magic just a couple of seasons ago. And then last season he was on the San Antonio Spurs staff with obviously Greg Popovich and was previously on the Spurs staff for before the Orlando Magic gig. So this guy's got plenty not head coaching experience, but at least coaching experience, mm-hmm. and he's learned from the best. We've been all, around the NBA. Well, yeah, yeah, been around the NBA. But if we're going to be honest, Jordan, all these interviews that the Grizzlies have conducted to date, right? Frank Vogel, ex-Pacers head coach, Messina on the Spurs staff, David Fisdale, Miami Heat, Patrick Ewing, Charlotte Hornets, and Nate Tibbetts, who just got confirmed interviewed today, the ex-Portland Trailblazers assistant coach. So if we're going to look at that list, Borrega, yes, he might be a name, quote-unquote, but if we're going to be honest, he's not in my top three of names. So what do you think that means by gaining steam? Does that mean he's the front-runner now, or does that mean it was just a great interview and we're just going to see what happens with the remaining interviews? I think currently he might be at the top of their list. I think he might be shooting number one. I think um, they have a few other options. They probably still have Frank Vogel on their list of candidates, but it's looking like that he would prefer the Orlando job. They probably still had David Fisdale on their list of candidates, but uh, Borrego seems to be that number one spot. With their with the candidate list that they've put out, it's not a very popular list of uh, candidates. It's not the most uh, not the most appealing. Sexy. Yeah, not, not the sexy. most. Yeah, that's a good word. Great word to describe it. Sexy. Like a lot of these guys, you got to go digging deep to yeah. figure out what they've really done, their accomplishments. So. I think that might be a good thing, though, kind of keep it under the radar. So are they trying to do the approach? I've brought this up on Twitter multiple times about are they trying to go the Chicago Bulls route? Yes, Fred Hoiberg was a Chicago Bulls guy for life, right? He played under them. He was under the Phil Jackson head coach. He played for them. He had multiple experiences with the Chicago Bulls. So it's a little bit different. But at the same time was, right, plenty, plenty of head coaching experience in the college ranks and now came back here where Chicago wanted complete control. Tom Thibodeau is the kind of guy where it's like, you know, I'm a hell of a coach. I should deserve some power. Jaeger mm-hmm. thinks I'm the same thing. I'm a great coach. I deserve some power. Grizzly said no. Bulls said no. So Bulls brought in a guy who they could quote-unquote dictate. I don't know if that's the right word, but they at least want the better say than what Thibodeau was going to offer. Mm-hmm. Jaeger wanted more say. Grizzly said no. You can go leave. So he left. 
So with these assistant coaches that are basically trying to get a foot in the door as a head coaching opportunity, right? Patrick Ewing's been around the game for 50 years, 30 years an assistant coach. Tibbetts has been around the Cavaliers and Portland Trailblazers, Fisdale with the Miami Heat, et cetera. If you're not going the Frank Vogel route and you're literally going for an assistant coach like a Fisdale or a Tibbetts who are guys who are just trying to get some experience and a guy who are just trying to get their foot in the door and just see what happens, are they just trying to get a guy in and see what happens and, let, and basically run them? And then if it gets good, then we can move up forward, but we're going to start here with you and then see if you can get here. But if you can't get here, it doesn't matter because we're not going to get fired for it because it's your first time getting a job. That could possibly be it, yeah. I could see management bringing in a guy and kind of installing their philosophy in that guy and kind of running it through them, just kind of using them as a as a name to put, put out there on the bench. But I think with with those guys like that, I think you also want to integrate their specific skills. A guy like Fizdale, who's a very – a uh, good player development yeah. coach who works well with a lot of different personalities. Who we have a lot of different personalities in Memphis. You could use him also to kind of get Stevenson's mind right to kind of get him to mesh well with Conley, Marcus, all those guys. Uh, Borrego, we're not too sure about him. Like I, I don't know what he's good at. I don't know what he's bad at. Seems like it could be really good or really bad. Uh, the the good thing we know about him, he came from the Spurs. Yeah, a lot of guys out of Spurs management seem to do well. Then we read that article before we got on the air about Tibbetts. How he, mm-hmm. you know, he's the good article saying basically he's the Dave Yeager scheme, right? He's a great on-court decision maker. He can run the play calls like Yeager did. He can do specific things like that. So that's always a positive thing. But it seemed like if you still wanted a guy who was great at play calling, Yeager was your guy. Clearly, yeah. <clears throat> excuse me, but he just didn't go along with the organization. Didn't get mm-hmm. along with them all whatsoever. So I think personally, if you're going to try to get a guy who's a unproven head coach who has no experience as being in the head chair but at the same time you want power over him that's what they're going to do because clearly Frank Vogel's the number one option and he should be the number one option if you're looking for experienced head coach a guy who's proven winner with less talent and that could build up talent look Paul George is a top 10 player but he wasn't a top 10 player when he got in the league Mm. David West a lot of people didn't like his game you know he didn't know what he was going to do Roy Hibbert had his best years under Frank Vogel and look what he is now he's one of the worst centers in the NBA so I don't know what they're trying to do. If they're trying to go less experienced so they can have power over him and make sure every decision they want to do is they're not going to have any problem with the head coach. Because if we're like, we want to trade Jeff Green and Courtney Lee at the trade deadline. We don't want Dave Yeager coming to us two hours before we make the deal and says, what the hell are you doing? I don't want you to do that. I'm pretty sure Yeager did that. Yeah. If they hire Fisdale, if they hire Tibbetts, Borrega, et cetera, they know if they make the move, they, they can't say a word because it's their first job yeah. and they don't want to F up and say, what are you doing? Well, this is what we're doing. You're the first time head coach. You don't have any say whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So that's just what I think they're literally trying to do. So do you think Vogel's a guy that they can bring in and also kind of instill their philosophy in him and kind of run the team through him? That's why it's so different. We haven't heard Vogel's name in a couple of weeks, right? That's right. why I'm keeping thinking, right? I think I think Vogel's set on Orlando or nothing, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I think it's, you know, Orlando's got that young talent, a great – Oladipo and Peyton could be very special for a long, long time to come. And they know they're a stable organization. They want to get to the playoffs. The Grizzlies, you know you're in the playoffs every single year if Mike Conley and Mark Gasol are healthy, in my opinion. You can make the playoffs every year. With Vogel, I think he wants he wants power. I don't necessarily think he wants Thibodeau power slash Jaeger power, but I think he wants the power and some say. And that's why these last two weeks we've been hearing Messina, we've heard Tibbetts today, we heard Fisdale yesterday, and we heard Patrick Ewing earlier this week, and then Borrega today. I think Vogel's, he should be here, Jordan, he should be at the top of the list. Yeah. But I think he's coming down because I think he said, I want some power, and the Grizzlies organization are thinking, 
I don't think we want to give you that much power that you're saying. So how about we go to the so guys that are at the bottom right now who have proven associate mm-hmm. head coaches that we can make head coaches, but at the same time, since it's their first job, we know we have power over them. So what do you think he wants more, power or wants to win? Because of uh, Vogel. So Vogel, in his case, I think Orlando is willing to give him that power. I agree. I, I don't think. think he gets the Thibodeau treatment where he's the head coach slash president mm-hmm. of operations, but I think he gets a big say yeah. on it, and I think he gets a huge say in it. I think they give him that young talent and yeah. tell him to, to develop it. And with the Grizzlies, right, I, just, I still don't know what they are going forward. Because in this, in what you did—that's what you need to decide going forward. Because when you look at Patrick Ewing, you look at a six-eleven guy who was one of the best centers in the NBA history, and you could say we can stick to the grit and grind because he's a big guy. He knows mm-hmm. how to work with Marcus Gasol, but whatever. When you look at Fizdale, you look at a guy who's player development. He worked tremendously on Hassan Whiteside and Richardson in, in Miami to make yeah. those guys who they are. Then you look at Tibbetts, a guy who's basically been quiet for all these years. Trust me. Everybody on this podcast had no idea who Nate Tibbetts was two weeks ago. I know I did. Let's just be completely honest, okay? So he's the kind of guy who's just looking for a chance, like Jaeger, right? He was on the bench with the Memphis Grizzlies for Jaeger for nine years with Hollins and et cetera, and he just wanted a chance. He got a chance, and Mm -hmm. that's what Tibbetts wants. He just wants a chance and say, here, let me prove to you why I'm a good coach. That's basically a swing and miss, right? He could be a great hire. It's a great swing. You hit a home run, or you could hit hit into five double plays in the next four years, and you're screwed. So I don't know. Jordan, Frank Vogel to me is if you want a guy who gets the job done, doesn't matter what he has. Paul George, yes, is way better than what most Grizzlies fans can agree that what the Grizzlies have right now. But after that, he made David West a 20-10 and 10 guy. He made Lance Stevenson a guy who blew in LeBron James one year and then scored 25 points the next game. He made Roy Hibbert arguably an all-star, which he was for two seasons, and mm-hmm. now look at him, a piece of gum on the bottom of their shoes. He made him damn good. And George Hill, who we thought at the time was just a – he was good in San Antonio, but at now he just dictates his offense. He does what he has to do. Nothing mm-hmm. spectacular. We can both agree that Mike Conley's better than George Hill. But he just got the job done, and that's what he can do in Memphis, right? Yes, the Grizzlies have to decide, are we grit and grind until Zebo and Tony Allen retire, or are we going to transition now to where Zebo comes off the bench, Tony Allen comes off the bench, and our team is Mike Conley, Mark Gasol, and three shooters. Mm-hmm. That's what they need to be, in my opinion. Mark Gasol, Mike Conley, three shooters, then Zach Randolph and Mark Gasol against certain teams. Tony Allen against that certain matchup, Kevin Durant, Carmelo Anthony, Paul George. Those kind of games, you play them 30-plus minutes. But when you're playing Charlotte, who doesn't have that quote-unquote guy, Philadelphia, whatever, Tony Allen doesn't play big minutes. So Grizzlies have to decide what they are. And with Fisdale, I think that's the leading candidate, okay? I think that's the guy that they're leaning towards right now because he gets along with Big egos. LeBron James from day one comes to Miami, new scenario, new scene, right? Never been to Miami, only to play games. He goes because of his best friends. But at the same time, he knows he can't just win with his best friends. He needs people around him to help him mm-hmm. and listen. Fisdale, I can bet from day one, and said, this is how it's going to be done. I know you came for Dwayne Wade. I know you came for Chris Bosh and, Pat Ra- and Patrick Riley. But at the same time, I'm here to guide you through the way. I can show you how to do this. Mm-hmm. So if that's the way they're trying to do it, they think Fisdale can connect with Zach Randolph, connect with Tony Allen, Lance Stevenson if he returns since he's such a big ego, and that's the way they're going to lean. So do you, so, so you're feeling Fisdale more than Vogel, what you're saying? Personally, I want Frank Vogel, but like I said, I don't think it's happening because I think he wants more power than the other guys, and they know the Grizzlies organization, if they bring in Fisdale, Borrego, or Tibbetts, they get the power over them. Yeah, so you think it would just be too much of a clash? Probably. 
because if, if we're going to be honest, in two weeks we've heard more about Frank Vogel to to um, the New York Knicks and Orlando Magic than to the Memphis Grizzlies. Yeah. It kind of feels like the that in the city of Memphis, Frank Vogel's name just faded off. Yeah, like the first, the, as soon as you heard Dave Yeager was fired Saturday morning, the first name out of everybody's mouth was Frank Vogel that yep. Saturday afternoon slash Sunday into Monday, and then after two after like three days, his name was out of the people's yep. mouths, and then it went to Fisdale, Patrick Ewing, Messina, now Borrega. Yeah. So, I don't know, Jordan. It's a dicey the situation because Fizdale looks like a kind of guy who doesn't take shit from anybody, mm-hmm. and which is a good thing in this day and age of the NBA. You can't have egos in a locker room and be successful. Because yep. this is the hardest thing that they have to decide, right? This team has been together for five to six years now. They know their ins and ways out of how to be successful. They know mm-hmm. that. So if the Grizzlies management are trying to bring in somebody that's going to switch everything, right? Like literally, if they do what I say, bench Zebo and bench Tony Allen, you can't do what Jaeger did. Ten games into the season, you're two and eight. We're like, oh, we're shit out of luck. We just lost by 50 to Golden State. What do we do? We bench sack and we start Jeff. You can't do that 10 games into the season. Mm-hmm. That messes everything up chemistry-wise. Yep. you got to instill it in the offseason going into the season. So everyone's on the same page. Exactly. So that's what they got to do. Whoever they hire, they got to decide, what are we? If we hire Frank Vogel, do we want Frank Vogel to be the guy who had David West and Roy Hibbert a couple of years ago and still play big and then have a guy that can bail you out in Mike Conley slash mm-hmm. Lance Stevenson? Or do we want Fisdale, who's going to maybe bring in a new – scheme where you're going to play like Miami does now. Yes, it was through injuries, but play like Miami where you got the one big guy, Hassan Whiteside, slash Mark Gasol, and then shooters around him, slash playmakers. Or you're going to go with the Spurs route with Messina or, or Borrega where it's complete ball movement. You're going to move it from right to left, see what happens. And then with Tibbetts, we honestly don't know. We'll just see what happens with that. And then Patrick Ewing, same thing. He might be 6'11", but I think he wants to show the world, yes, I'm 6'11". You don't see a lot of 6'11". Centers as a head coach on the sidelines, but I want to play my way and his way the last three years in Charlotte, up and down tempo. But you know, from time to time, you can dump it to Al Jefferson, Sly Sebo now, and then get your bucket. So they got to decide what they are. And if they decide what they are, then that's what the, the play is going to dictate next season and going forward. And that's going to dictate what head coach is going to be. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that might be what's holding up this process so long. I think it might, they might be looking at the roster and ch- still trying to figure out where they want to go in that the future. That might be a possibility. So now Orlando, all indications say Frank Vogel might be the job there or Adrian Griffin, the guy who was an associate head coach the last couple of seasons with Scott Skiles in Orlando. If I'm Frank Vogel, personally, I want the Orlando job before the Memphis job. Younger talent, more stable organization. I know my core players aren't 33, 34, 29, and 31. So if I'm Frank Vogel, I make Orlando say, you know, I want Orlando's job. And then if he mm-hmm. says no, then it all depends on him. Does he want to come back right away into the game, or does he want to take a year off like Thibodeau and just see what the waters play out and then get a great situation like Thibodeau did in Minnesota? Mm-hmm. So I think, I still think he might want the Memphis job if Memphis offer him amounts of money, but I think Vogel said, you know, I'm a proven head coach. I've been to the Eastern Conference Finals multiple seasons. I deserve yeah. money. You can't give him $1.8 million that you were giving Dave Yeager. You have to give him 4 maybe even $5 mm-hmm. million. So we'll see what happens there. I don't know whether Orlando, what do you think? I think he's definitely worth that money that you're talking about. I think if he goes to Orlando, I think the good thing about Orlando as opposed to Memphis, I think he'll be under less pressure yeah. in Orlando. I don't think they're in a uh, in like a final stages like Memphis is. I think they have a lot of young talent that they're, they're just coming into their prime. So he's kind of catching them at a jump start period. So I think the good thing going forward for that um, – He'll be able to put it all together. And then with Houston, right? 
Mike D'Antoni emerged today as a leading candidate for the Houston Rockets head coaching job. He got a second interview sometime this week, we assume. So with Mike D'Antoni, we know he's all about offense. So he, he can tell James Harden, you don't have to worry about defense because mm-hmm. we don't play defense under my system. Ooh, so you James, know he's relieved. Oh, absolutely. You see Mike D'Antoni's like, boy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, Jordan. Mike D'Antoni basically started this whole up-tempo game a couple mm-hmm. of years ago with Phoenix, right? Steve Nash. It all started with Steve Nash Mark and Phoenix. It all started with Phoenix, and then it sort of slowly but surely took off. It didn't take away off right away. It was still – he was only the only guy who yep. basically did it. But now everybody, you know, goes back to, like, it all started with Dan Tony. So can he make – because if you think in Houston's roster, right, James Harden, if they re-sign Dwight Howard, they got that James Harden, Dwight Howard, Steve Nash, Amari Stoudemire thing going mm-hmm. on. Can it work? I mean, you need Dwight back in a Houston uniform first. Yeah. I mean, is there, is Mike bringing in Mike D'Antoni going to bring Dwight Howard back? Because Cause remember, they worked together in L.A. Remember when Dwight Howard was with the Lakers and D'Antoni was with the Lakers? They were forced to work together. I don't yeah. know if it went well. Like, from what we saw, it didn't go well. I don't know how it went in the locker room. I don't know if they liked each other or what. But yeah. the big thing about D'Antoni's offense, it was a lot of up-and-down pace. It was a lot of pick-and-roll, Steve Nash, Amari Stoudemire. You need another guy for James Harden to run that pick and roll with. You need another guy to run. Clint Capella. Can can he finish? Is he a finisher? No. I just nah, think, no. nah. I, that's why I wanted you to say that. Nah, he ain't. <laughs> because that's the thing. Like the past couple of years with Bickerstaff and McHale, it was one on five with James Harden. Mm-hmm. Hardly ever a pick and roll. So that might be interesting. That if James Harden buys in and says, you still have the ball in your hand, you're still the dominant guard. But how about this time we get some pick and roll, get some movement, mm-hmm. and then when people suck down on you and double team you, then you can lob it up to Dwight, lob it up to right. Clint Capella, and look for your outside shots. So on paper it could work, but James Harden's got an unbelievable ego. Dwight Howard's got an unbelievable ego. Mike D'Antoni can walk in there from day one and said, I've made it to the Western Conference Finals. I know how to be successful. Mm-hmm. Listen to me. They don't listen to you. It's your own fault, right? So on paper it sounds like it could work, but it all depends if Dwight Howard comes back, right? Yeah, I think Mike D'Antoni is still going to come in with that mindset, we're just going to outscore you. I don't care how many points you put up, we're just going to outscore you. I think he's going to try to make, he's kind of going to try to integrate some ball movement, try to get their shooters to come back alive. A guy like Jason Terry, Patrick Beverly, Trevor Ariza, try to get those guys sparked back up because they, they just shot poorly last season. They shot a lot of them, but they yeah. didn't make a lot of them. Yeah. So um, I think that that's also a part of it that that makes it work so well, that made it work so well back in Phoenix. Yeah. So time will tell what happens with the Grizz carousel, coaching carousel, all in the NBA. We'll keep you tuned, of course, here on the podcast on blueworldorder.com. So, Jordan, let's transition into now more of the NBA daily games where we witnessed game one, a historic, fantastic ball game between the Oklahoma City Thunder and the Golden State Warriors. Fantastic basketball, Jordan. 108-102 for the Oklahoma City Thunder. Huge comeback. 27 from Russell Westbrook. 19 in the third quarter. He was fantastic. Just an overall fantastic game to witness, Jordan, because the way Oklahoma City played in that first half, you're thinking they're about to get blown out of the waters here. Going in halftime, down double figures, you're thinking Golden State is right where they need to be. Up double figures at home, best arena fan-wise in the NBA. You're thinking they're just going to push through. Mm -hmm. But slowly but surely, all of a sudden, Russell Westbrook, Kevin Durant, Deion Waiters, Adams, just slowly but surely chipped away, and all of a sudden, you look up with five minutes left, they've got a five-point lead in Oracle, and you're thinking, what the hell just happened? Yep. Fantastic to witness Oklahoma City do that in game one. I think in that third quarter, Russell Westbrook was definitely a spark. 19 points. It wasn't 
it wasn't ball movement really. I mean, it wasn't just like a lot of well-designed plays. He was knocking down jumpers in Steph Curry's face. Like it was just him being better than his defender. And I think that's what sparked the rest of his team. That's what that's what kind of was the catalyst for that comeback. KD didn't play well the entire game. He didn't. His biggest play was that that was that last shot in the yeah. fourth quarter. Shot ten for thirty. I mean, none of them shot well. I think Russ was like seven for twenty-one or something. Mm. So, I mean, the the biggest thing is that I think they they did a good job enforcing their style. They yes. went with the bigs. They didn't. They weren't scared of the Warriors going small. They didn't listen to maybe we should try to keep up with them. Maybe we should try to outrun them. They kind of stuck with the consistent lineup that's been getting them that far. And we talked off air, and you and you pointed out that. They uh they substituted Ibaka in for a lot of the fourth quarter instead of going Adams and Cantor. Yeah, it was oh. a huge difference. Yeah. First half, Cantor was isolated on Draymond Green and Iguodala three straight possessions, and he got scored on every single time. Mm-hmm. And they would put Curry Iguodala in a pick and roll because they Oklahoma City thought they could sacrifice Cantor's defense by guarding Iguodala. But Steve Curry knows what the hell he's doing. Yeah. So he put Iguodala and Curry in a pick and roll and put Cantor in that. Cantor had no idea what he was doing. But like yeah, like we mentioned off air. Big difference he did. All San Antonio series last, you know, starting probably game two, second half going forward, it was all Cantor and Adams in the fourth quarter. But this time he started Cantor and Ibaka to start the fourth quarter. And then about five minutes under six-minute timeout, he put Adams in for Cantor and then mm-hmm. stayed with Ibaka and um, Adams. And it was a huge difference because Ibaka's got the foot speed to stay with the big guys slash small guys. And then you know you got rim protection in Adams. Mm-hmm. A lot of Memphis people don't like it. Steven Adams around here for making how Zebo got suspended for – punching him, quote-unquote, a couple of years ago. But, Jordan, that guy's a baller. That guy is unbelievable about what he does. He ain't scared of anybody. He is not scared of anybody. He will go on national TV and call people monkeys, too. I was hoping you were going to – because if you weren't, I was going to bring it up. (laughs) Obviously, he didn't mean it on purpose. But he's the kind of guy who says, your monkey's on national TV. He calls everybody mate because he's from New Zealand. And that's why I think in his apology, that's why you got to cut him some slack. He's obviously not from here. Yeah. He doesn't know the context of monkey. Yeah. He doesn't know that it's kind of related to another yeah. another racial term. Like, he doesn't know the seriousness of it. Like, let's give him pay. Yeah. Now, if he does it again, yeah. that's when we can kind of get in the uproar about yeah. it. But he's the kind of guy who's just going to speak his mind. He's a very young kid who just came out of college a couple of years ago. But three years ago, when he came out of Pittsburgh, I don't know what the hell he was. I didn't know yeah, if he was a rim protector, <laughs> if he was a runner. I don't know what he was. But now, Jordan, that guy is physical. He does little stuff that people might get under his skin a little bit. That's why Grizzlies fans didn't like him for Zebo. They mm-hmm. think he tolerated Zebo to make Zebo do that. But if it's in the law and you're not punching anybody in the in the groin or tripping them on purpose and it's just little elbows here, little pushes here, I don't care. Whatever it lets you do to get a win, you got to get a win. And nobody wins an Oracle. So yeah. Steven Adams might be the difference in the San Antonio series, and he just might be the difference in this series. Mm-hmm. So game two tonight. What's the big difference from from Golden State, excuse me? Is it strictly shoot the ball better? That's what we hear all the time. Is it put Cantor more in pick and rolls when we see that when he's on the floor? Is it Curry needs to be more aggressive? Is it all the little big topics, or is it something in particular that Golden State has to do differently? I think a big thing I saw from Golden State was through three quarters, they were 10 for 20 Yes, from three. Fourth quarter, they shot one for 10. Jumpers all of a starting all of a sudden started missing, but they kept on shooting. Uh, OKC took way more free throws. They mm-hmm. got, I think that was a big difference. More aggressive. Also, they were more aggressive getting into the paint. I think that's what the Warriors have to do. Steph Curry is great at getting to the hole. Draymond Green is great at getting to the hole. I think Clay Thompson is great at getting to the hole. They need to do that. They need to go to the free throw line. They need to try to get some easy buckets. 
they live by the three, they die by the three. They died by the three last game. I don't th- I don't think it was on their last call. I think they put themselves in that yeah. position anyway. So you're going to be clear, the travel should have definitely been called. Yeah, it, should have, it was a travel. It was definitely a travel, but to be on defense of the referee slash Russell Westbrook, he was trying to stop in full motion because Billy Donovan yelled in his ear, mm-hmm. call a timeout. So at the same time, you're like, oh, crap, i got to call a timeout. So yeah. your pivot foot slides. So he's not going to the rim. He's not trying to make a basketball move. He's literally trying to stop to call the timeout. So, mm-hmm. yes, by rule, it's a travel, and he should have been called. But at the same time, you can see why the referees didn't call it. Yeah. But it was a no outcome, in my opinion, to how the game ended. Right. So I agree, Jordan. we got to see more Curry, Draymond Green pick and roll, no settling for the threes from mm-hmm. Curry, unless you're open and unless you're hot. Give it to Draymond. Then when the team suck in on Draymond since he's so powerful going to the rim, you got Clay in one corner, yep. Harrison in one corner, Bogut around the rim looking for the lobs, mm-hmm. et cetera. And if you're going to get those threes, that's when you get open threes. Exactly. That's when you get kick-out threes. Yes. Not just strictly Curry one-on-one, let me dance yeah. with you. you Don't can let do him it. force you into yeah. a three. Because Russell Westbrook's not going to back down. Right. This guy thinks he's the best player in the world. Mm-hmm. A lot of people might think he's a top three player. In his mind, I don't care what other people think. I'm yes. the best player in the world. And there's no other debate about exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> so Russell's going to keep going and going and going at you until you can't take it no more. So Curry needs to realize the way not to beat him on the offensive end is shoot out, shoot him. Mm-hmm. Don't try to suck into your game on him. Be aggressive on him. Because when Russell gets a little out of control, you see him throw those layups against the backboard. They go way off. He gets yep. a little crazy in his head. That's when Russell picks up the foul. That's when Russell gets a little immaturity from time to time. Mm-hmm. So let Curry dictate the game, yes, by shooting from time to time, but more dis- you know, distributing to Draymond, to Clay. But they got to get that ball movement going again. When the yeah. ball movement gets going again, it's an unbelievable thing to witness, and it's probably the best team we've seen in NBA history the past two years when they move that ball. Yeah. I definitely agree. So now, one question that comes from this series. I know it's only game one, but based off what you've seen through 73 wins this season and what you saw the adjustments to what Billy Donovan did in that San Antonio San Antonio Spurs series, who's the better coach in this series, Steve Kerr or Billy Donovan? Are we talking about over total body of work? Yeah, college, NBA, it doesn't matter. Whatever you've seen in these playoffs, in these play in this season, who's the better coach? I got to go Kerr because he's won a championship. That's an easy way to bail out. It's <laughs> the right way to bail out. What you talking about? Well, it's Billy Donovan. <laughs> he's won two in college. I didn't say he was bad. I didn't say he was bad. I wasn't taking anything away from him. But Kerr. But the adjustment Billy Donovan did against that San Antonio It was fantastic. Spurs. It was fantastic. Kerr made another fantastic adjustment last season to win them a championship. That is true. Mm-hmm. So they, it, they each have great adjustments. But Kerr hasn't had to do any adjustments this year because he he's got the team set in stone, right? Hey, he might have one this game. Well, we'll see. I have one tonight. You can lean towards Kirk, because like you mentioned, he benched David Lee to, for Draymond Green. He told all these things, this is what we're going to do. We're going to bench Iguodala. You're right. That's fantastic. But to do it on the fly, he did that in the training camp, remember? Mm-hmm. From the first preseason, he said this is what's going to happen. For 55 games this year, Billy Donovan, throughout the game, would bench Zach, sorry, Zach Randall, <laughs> Russell Westbrook and Kevin Durant together at the same time and that's the most destroying thing you can do for your team when you've got two out of the top five players in the world to bench it at the same mm-hmm. time so then halfway through the season he said what the hell am i doing i can't do that so he switched that so every time now you always see russell or kd on the floor then in the Spurs series what does he do twin towers we never thought that would work against san antonio because the ball moved we didn't think kenner could do it blah blah mm-hmm. blah he did it so i lean towards donovan only because he's done it in this series slash playoffs so kurt said, we're going to do that training camp last season. This is what we're going to do. You're going to like it or you're going to go. 
And I agree, that's a hell of a thing to do mm -hmm. since they haven't done it for so many years. But he did that at the training camp, and they've known now for two straight seasons into the playoffs, this is how we're going to play. Billy Donovan said two weeks ago against San Antonio, oh, yeah, Cantor and Adams are going to play in the fourth quarter now. Go be successful. That takes guts. Look, that, that's a great argument you got there, but I, I just don't think Donovan <clears throat> has done it long enough. He's obviously off to a great start. I think he's going to be a great head coach in this league. I hope he's with OKC. Personally, I would love to see KD stay. Yeah, I would love to see KD and Russ stay, keep trying it multiple years. But uh, he's still a rookie, man. He's a rookie head coach. Like he, he needs more time. Maybe one day he might be better than Kerr. Mm. That's fine. I agree. Yeah. We can we can agree to disagree. That's fine. So we'll transition to this question now into the next segment. Who's been more impressive in these playoffs so far, the nine and zero Cleveland Cavaliers or the Oklahoma City Thunder? Hmm. Now that's a tough one. I think I have to. I think I have to go with OKC. I think I have to go with OKC. Cleveland has looked unstoppable, but on the other side of it, you got to look at their competition too. You got to look at they played against the Detroit team. They were kind of supposed to sweep. They were playing against a um, an Atlanta team that they had swept last year. They pretty much had the same team this year except for Damari Carroll. They're supposed to sweep them again. Demolished a Toronto team without Valanciunas last night. They're, they're kind of taking care of business like they're supposed to. OKC, I didn't think they were going to get past the Spurs. I don't think anybody thought they were going to get past the Spurs. I think that was, it was a head-on collision for Spurs and Warriors. And beating a uh, beating a Spurs team who kind of who who won all those games in the regular season, who won what sixty five, sixty seven games, sixty seven, sixty seven games, and kind of knocking them out in six games, that's pretty incredible what they've been doing. And to win against win the first game against the uh, the previous defending champions, yeah, we're right. Impressive. On, we're right on page here, Jordan. You're absolutely right. That you can arguably say. This, these playoffs for the Cleveland Cavaliers have gotten easier had the series yes. have gone by. Yeah. Detroit got swept, but all four games were competitive. Yeah. Every single game was close. Detroit gave them everything they could. Cleveland has beaten Toronto, has beaten Atlanta now 16 straight games. Four this season, four, la four in the postseason, four in the regular season, four last season, and four again, and then previously. That's ridiculous. <laughs> so you could arguably say Detroit has been the hardest team they've played all playoff long. Yeah. But at the same time, people can argue, it's just not Cleveland's fault. They're just that good, which is true, yeah, that's true. which is absolutely true. But like you said, Oklahoma City losing by 30-plus to San Antonio in game one. Mm -hmm. Billy Donovan makes that one adjustment. They win in six games against a team that we thought was the second-best season in NBA history that mm -hmm. nobody talked about because of what Golden State did. I agree, Jordan. It has to be Oklahoma City who's been the better team slash better performer and more impressive so far these playoffs. I don't yeah. care. 9-0 is fantastic. Ty Lue's been fantastic with his adjustments. He's bought in from LeBron in day one, and I still think Cleveland will definitely either sweep Toronto or win in five games. But if Oklahoma City – now we could reverse the question like this, though. Does Oklahoma City have to win this series against Golden State for them to be more impressive than Cleveland to say if Cleveland sweeps Toronto? Because in my opinion is no. Because if, say, Oklahoma City gets a Game 7 in Oracle and loses by 5 or 10, you, got, you beat the second-best team in the world in San Antonio, you force a Game 7 against the, arguably the best team in NBA history, people might mm -hmm. say. To me, that's a win. So what if Cleveland goes in and beats Golden State and wins the championship? Then that's obviously the best. That's the best team. But we're sticking right now in the conference finals. Okay. Yeah, if Cleveland wins the championship, then yes, by far more impressive. Mm -hmm. 
But if, say, Cleveland sweeps Toronto and they remain undefeated going into the finals, but Oklahoma City loses in Game 7 at Oracle by 5 or 10, who has been more impressive? I would agree, yeah. Still Oklahoma agree. City? I would say OKC. Just just because the, the road has been so much tougher, yeah. man. Like, it's just going to be a, such a – it's such a different elevation of level in the Western Conference as, a, as opposed to the East. So – I want to I ask you a question. I'm going to flip a question on you. Flip it away. I'm going to flip it on you. So if Cleveland... You go. You go. I forgot my question. Okay. That's a live, that's live podcast for you right there, baby. Okay. If you come back to my hobby. <laughs> Do you want to talk about the Raptors and Cavs game one? Is What is there to say? I mean, no defense. 115 no defense to 84. No defense from Toronto. Yeah, it's about it, maybe. <laughs> if Jonas comes back in game two or game three, is it irrelevant? It's irrelevant in my mind. I don't think it's going to change anything. I, <laughs> I, don't even, I think it's just going to add another body for him. Maybe. I, have, I literally have no idea what to say about this series. You know, I actually tried to watch it and get into it. Why? I'm sitting in Why? front of it. <laughs> I'm sitting in front of it, right? I'm paying attention. I'm watching analysis, substitutions, little runs going on. So I'm like, okay, well, T- Toronto had the lead. They were up by three in the first quarter. I'm like, dang, this might be a game. This might be a game. Instantly shoe off. Second quarter, they instantly go up by 11. Yeah. It, it just went downhill for Toronto from there. Because DeRozan was fantastic in the first yeah, quarter. Yeah, DeRozan was fantastic. Getting to his spots, making it mid, mid-range. He was looking like the all-star. Yep. But he had 14 of his 18 in the first quarter. Boom. It didn't mean anything. Didn't mean nothing. <laughs> if we play a 12-minute basketball, yeah, fantastic game for Toronto. Yep. But unfortunately, we play 48 and LeBron and that core Kyrie Irving now. We could talk about that a little bit. How basically Kyrie's sort of taken over the, the scoring, right? If you mm-hmm. look every series so far, Kyrie's averaged the most points. He's averaged the most shot attempts in these series, in the three series so far. I think LeBron's not necessarily defer- deferring to Kyrie, but at the same time, he's like, I didn't have this last year. Mm-hmm. Kyrie wasn't fully healthy. And then when his knee completely went, you're like, oh, God, you know. But. He didn't have this option in Kyrie last year. Kyrie, we can arguably say, is a top five point guard in the world, maybe top four. Mm-hmm. And the guy right behind Stephen Curry, there's nobody better in the NBA who can go from handle to handle up to a layup or to a shot than anybody besides Stephen Curry. Yep. And the way he plays up and downhill when Cleveland starts running, the when they start moving that ball and they start going up and down, it's unbelievable to watch. And I think, Jordan, Kyrie is going to be the difference. Not in this Raptors series. I think anybody can beat the Raptors mm-hmm. the way Cleveland's playing. It might be Channing Frye next game who goes off for seven threes. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Could be Richard Jefferson one game. But in Golden State in particular, I think Kyrie's going to say to himself, you know, it wasn't fair last year. You you lost to us in six games with without me and without K-Love. Yeah. Now I want to take the challenge to LeBron. I'm going to be like, LeBron, I got your back, man. I want to show you that I can beat Stephen Curry. In my mind, I'm better than Stephen Curry. Mm-hmm. Let me go show you. And I think LeBron now is sort of doing that, right? In Detroit series, Kyrie Irving had big-time shots against Reggie Jackson, against Atlanta. He basically won the matchup against Jeff Teague slash Dennis Schroeder. He's mm-hmm. looking like he's going to outplay the All-Star and Kyle Lowry this series. I think slowly but surely, the whole season long, when the LeBron and and Kyrie are having those, you know, head scratching moments where they're like sort of head to head where each other they didn't know where to go. Where Kyrie was like, "I want to be the guy." LeBron's like, "Come on, dude! I'm the MVP. I'm the best mm-hmm. player in the world. I'm still the guy." But slowly but surely, I think LeBron's sort of warmed up to Kyrie Irving, and Kyrie Irving's like, "I want to be the teacher to the professor." 
But at one level, I want to be the same professor on the same level here. And I think mm -hmm. slowly but surely, Kyrie's climbing that mountaintop. And come NBA Finals, Kyrie's going to have to be on a mission to beat Stephen Curry with that individually one-on-one -on -one matchup. So you think he's going to take that challenge personally, huh? Yeah, because I think the way Kyrie's played this whole entire playoffs, LeBron's been like, go do you. Mm -hmm. And when you can't do you, you got me right here. You got K-Love there. You got JR here. And you got Channing Frye here. So I think Kyrie's coming up to something here, Jordan. Because I think when Kyrie has a big-time matchup, his game elevates. Like, I, it's hard to see that how it could yeah. when he's playing guys like your Kyle Larrys, like your Steph Currys, like your Russell Westbrook. He plays on a different level. You saw before he got hurt last year in the finals, he played good D on Steph. Yes, he did. And and there's a, there's a misconception about Kyrie that he doesn't play defense. Yeah. I think that he doesn't always feel a need to play defense. I think I, I think that he relies on his team a lot. But when he wants to take that challenge, when he puts his mind to it, he can lock some guys down. I agree. And I think he's going to show that. And I think if they, when Cleveland gets to Golden State or Oklahoma City, obviously we can't just say Golden State because right. Oklahoma City's played fantastic these entire playoffs. But if we're going to both – are we still on agreement? We still think Oklahoma, We still think Golden State in six or seven? Yeah, we still okay. think Golden State. But if they, if they, if they lose, lose tonight, tonight, what are you thinking? Okay. I've, heard, I've heard some guys say it's over. I heard some guys say maybe not. We'll talk about that later. Let's talk about that later. Okay. Next week, next okay. week. So let's transition to our final segment of the NBA Draft Lottery, Jordan. Yes, it happened last night for the first time in NBA history. 1 through 14 stayed 1 through 14. Unbelievable. Never saw that. Didn't think it was going to happen. Sort of the snoozer, unfortunately. Boy, that was probably the most lackluster lottery I've ever seen. That is true. <laughs> but Philadelphia gets the first overall pick after three years of tanking after tanking after tanking. Sam Henke finally got his one goal. Now he's out of a job because he quit. But this is what he basically lived for for three years to get. I wanted the first overall pick. I had to deal with uh, Joel Embiid not playing, mm -hmm. Julia Locafor being a snoozer and beating up people in Boston's nightclub. Mm -hmm. Now I finally got a first overall pick, which we all think will be Ben Simmons. Yeah. Should it be Ben Simmons? And then what does this mean for Philadelphia going forward with the core of those young big guys and Ben Simmons? I want to start with Hinky though. I've, okay. I just want to picture him at home watching the lottery going, I told y'all would work. Yeah. I told y'all. Yeah. All you had to do was listen. Just believe in me. <laughs> yes, just yeah. believe in me. That's literally all he wanted, right? He didn't mm -hmm. want Jerry Colangelo and his son to take over because they didn't think Sam knew what he was doing. Yeah. He basically got his dream. He Didn't he say like two to three years rebuild? It's been three years. Yeah, he got the number one pick. Yeah. His prediction was spot on. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, Ben Simmons or Brandon Ingram? I think they all they both offer different things. Yes. I think Brandon Ingram has a much better shot on him. I think Ben Simmons has a much better playmaking ability. Uh Ben Simmons is kind of your do it all guy. He can get rebounds, he can assist, he can score the ball. Unfortunately not outside the paint mm. because I think the NBA is gonna adjust real fast to that. They're gonna make him develop a jump shot and if he doesn't, he's gonna struggle. Do you wanna know what I heard today? I was watching a show today and a guy compared Ben Simmons and Ingram as two players that one is in the NBA right now and one was a Hall of Famer in the NBA. Huh? <laughs> he said, Ingram is a good man, Rudy Gay. He can shoot the ball. He's got a good body on him. But he's not the kind of guy over a 15-year career, which Rudy's going to have, mm -hmm. where he's going to get points, but he's never going to be an all-star. And he's never going to make an NBA Finals appearance. And he's never going to go far in the NBA playoffs because he's the kind of guy who's just going to get buckets, but he can't be the go-to guy. Mm-hmm. Which, when I thought about it, it's interesting. We can get to that. Then he looked at Ben Simmons. Before injury, Penny Hardaway. Penny Hardaway. That's what he said. He said hmm. when Penny came out of college, he, was a sh he wasn't the greatest shooter no, in the world. No, he, he wasn't the greatest shooter. 
But he worked on his body. He was already God-given talent. I think Penny had a better handle. Probably, yeah. But I, I think we can both agree Ben's got a better pass. I think he can find his teammates better. Yeah. He wants to be LeBron. Yeah, That's he That's what does. he wants to be. He does. He wants to be a kind of guy who's like, I don't have to shoot the ball from the three-point range and I feel game. like he's in those early stages of LeBron where LeBron yeah. would, would defer to his teammates. Yes. I've seen Ben Simmons do that a lot with LSU. Yep. Ben Simmons, a lot of games, he could have went for 30 easily. Yeah. But he just passed it. He ended up getting 15, 10, and 7 or yeah, something. Yeah, exactly. So I think Philadelphia needs to go with Ben Simmons and then see what happens, right? you got Joel Embiid coming back most likely this year, Jaleel Okafor, Nerlens Noel. Somebody has to go. I don't know who it's going to be, but somebody has to go. Mm-hmm. they got Darren Saric coming from overseas. He's supposed to be really, really good. He's been overseas for two years. He's been averaging over 15 a game in Europe. He's supposed to be their point guard that they finally wanted, so we'll see what yeah. he's been. But now with the Los Angeles Lakers, right, whoever they don't take, if it is Ingram, they know they've got the core, quote-unquote core, with Clarkson, Russell, and Randall going forward. Is it smart for them to trade the two-pick to get a guy? To get a guy. Well, it doesn't matter who the guy is, but it has to be a guy who you trust more than those guys, a veteran leadership guy. Paul George, somebody like that, where you can trade the second pick. Or are they still in the rebuilding phase where they want to build up their young talent with Russell and all those guys and then get Ingram in there and just see what the core is in three or four years? But if you do that, you're telling Lakers fans, Three, pe- three previously seasons of tanking, and then this one Kobe retirement, whatever the hell that was, a show, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it, and then two or three more years of rebuilding. That's close to seven years of maybe non-playoff basketball in a Lakers uniform, which yeah. we would never seen in our lifetime. That's why I don't think Laker Nation and Laker organization can afford that. I think they have to trade the pick and get a veteran, somebody in there that they can at least make the eighth seed this season and see what happens. How highly is that pick valued? Like, how how much is Brandon Ingram potentially worth to another team? Because I don't think I don't think he's a groundbreaking player. I don't think he's like when Anthony Davis came, like a. Did you agree with Cousins. my? Did you agree with the um, Rudy Gay comparison? I think he'll be better. I think he'll be at least a one-time All Star. Okay. I think he'll at least be an All Star. But is he gonna be a uh, franchise changer? I don't. I don't think so. So I I think depending on how how other teams look at it, what kind of value you can get back for that second pick should determine whether or not you trade it. So somebody like Boston, who's got mm-hmm. the third pick, say you trade the second pick to Boston for their third pick plus Jay Crowder, and then you sign Al Horford in free agency. Would you do that? If I was the Lakers, I would. Okay. Would you I do would. it with your Boston? Would you give up a third pick to get the second pick, and then trade, a, and then say you trade Jay Crowder and you replace him with um, Ingram going forward, or do you think Boston's in that p- kind of position now where they have to trade their pick to get a better? Yeah, because honestly, I think if anybody's going to trade a pick, it's going to be more than likely Boston. Yeah. And I think if they make that trade with LA, you're kind of just committing to whoever you get in the draft. Yeah, and you're just kind of going to work with that. They have what eight total picks in the first round. Like so, they're gonna have a lot of guys coming in. Yeah. So I think they're gonna be real busy. Those those uh those phone lines are gonna be lighting up. But I think if if anybody's gonna make a trade, it's gonna be Boston. So say Boston trades back in the draft to say nine or ten, and then then they get the and then the Lakers trade with Boston to do that, and then the Lakers get Crowder or whatever, and then Boston gets that second overall pick. But they also traded back in there to get some more veteran players and see what happens and then Boston mm-hmm. can use that second overall pick as Ingram whoever or Ben Simmons to say we're not going to keep him we're going to trade him and Boston can use that as their asset we're thinking we got the second overall pick some team might want Ingram they might think he's the next up and coming thing 
come and get us a veteran player or somebody like that. I could see mm-hmm. him doing that. But I agree. Eight picks in the title first and second round for Boston. That's crazy. That's the one team that we're going to see a lot of moves happening this play yeah. in this in this draft for sure. So what do you think is that one piece they're missing, Jordan? Because you know you got Isaiah Thomas, point guard of the future. If you keep Crowder, small forward of the future. Avery Bradley, shooting guard of the future. They need a big guy, right? Yeah, they need a consistent big guy. But there's nobody in the draft that can be a consistent big guy. No. So if you trade the third overall pick for somebody like that, an Al Jefferson at Charlotte, you can do a sign and trade, something like that. Or you take on a gamble and Rudy Gobert at Utah, where Utah might think we've got more young talent. How about we get Mm -hmm. some more young talent and see what happens, something like that. Same with Derek Favors at Utah. Yeah. Or you can do a sign and trade with Atlanta. We trade you the third overall pick, but we sign Al Horford in return, and then Atlanta gets their rebuilding started with Al yeah. Horford. So it's all these different things they could do, but we all agree. They don't need more guards. They drafted no. two last year in the in the draft. They've got eight picks this year. Four or five of those picks have to either go to big man or they have to be traded away for big man assets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't even think they need any more young guys. Oh, I, I think they got, a, they got enough development going on now. I think they guys... At this point, we we know their guys are good. We know Avery Bradley's good. We know Jay Crowder's good. But they're not good enough to get you through in the playoffs. Yeah. Like, the, they saw that it was too much reliance on Isaiah. If yeah. Isaiah didn't have a great game, there was no chance. Yeah. So I think those picks need to go towards a veteran. I think that veteran, a veteran all-star at that, they need another all-star. How about this? They They keep the pick. And they want to develop him and see what happens. Yeah. But they have enough cap space this summer to go sign Hassan Whiteside. Should they think about doing that too? Or do you think they need a low post presence guy who can score like an Al Horford or Derek Favors? Because you know Whiteside, yes, he's a great rim protector. He's a good lobber guy. But he's still not that guy who can go towards the basket, do a one-on-one move and score. Horford can get you one-on-one buckets easily. Do you think they should go that route? Or what kind of big man are they looking for? I think Whiteside is a good enough big man because even though he can't score like a Al Horford, yeah. he's giving you enough on the defensive end to to make him your mainstay at the post. Mm. I think he's good enough. If he consistently played like he did in the second half with Miami, he's an all-star yeah, in the East. Yes. I agree. I agree. And that's good enough to have. That's true. That's good enough to have. You, you're getting a guy who's giving you 15 points, 12 rebounds, three or four blocks a game. And we're going to end it right there. I agree. Completely agree with that for sure. So game two tonight, Golden State – Oklahoma City Thunder, make sure you catch that. Obviously, if you want to keep watching the Cavaliers destroy the Raptors, by all means, you can tune into that also for the rest of the series, which might not be that appetizing. You might throw up your dinner. I might do that the same. Or just catch up on your sleep. Or catch up on your sleep. That's That's also another option. Always a great option this time of the year when there's Mm -hmm. hardly anything on TV besides bad NBA basketball between the Cavaliers and the Raptors or baseball. Get your rest for uh, OKC and the Warriors. By absolutely means. Sounds like a good plan. Thank you so much to the best producer in the Mid-South, Jordan Taylor, for his extended thought segment of the Ryan Glover podcast. Thank you so much. We'll tune you in again next week.